I'm Damien Barr and you are listening to the podcast of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. Here is me in conversation with Holly Sampson, lyricist, novelist and short story writer about her novel, The Kindness. Good evening everybody and welcome to Damien Barr, that's me's literary salon here in New York! Very excited to be here. Um, we are in Liberty Hall um, at the Ace Hotel. It's wonderful to host a salon in such a cool place um, and in such a place with um, such lovely lighting. Um, my inner Blanche Dubois is very happy with the slight dimness of the space. So to our first guest of the evening, she is the author of two uh, critically acclaimed novels, which um, are wonderful. She's going to talk about the second of those tonight and two equally celebrated collections of short stories. She is also, as you may have heard, a lyricist of no small note. She's here tonight to celebrate the US publication of her latest novel, The Kindness, and her newest stories, Perfect Lives. Before she joins me, um, I'm just going to embarrass her by reading a quote from Joanne Harris, which is very, it's a good quote. It's a good quote. About the kindness. The main ingredients of this novel are deceptively simple. A man, a woman, a house, a child. A long-kept secret to be revealed. Not in a fanfare, but in a series of small and somehow terrible revelations. It is a beautifully written and intricately constructed piece of writing. Shining, poetic and sumptuous. A portrait of a sunlit lake which at any moment may reveal itself to be the scene of a tragedy. She is a writer of great insight and sensitivity. She is Polly Sampson. Please welcome her. Thank you. Am I going to read? Yes, right you're now? going to read now. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read two short sections. Um, the novel spans, I think, 23 years. Um, the first piece I'm going to read is set in August 1989. Um, it's the story of a couple who are called Julia and Julian and this part is from Julia's point of view and she's known Julian for about a week. Lucifer flew well for her in the fading light, falling through the sky when she summoned him and away again towards a great bruising sunset. She was alone on the ridge at first just her, the bird, and the wide-open view. It was one of those nervy summer days of sudden strong winds that fretted the hawk's feathers as he stared at her from the perch on her gauntlet. She was wearing a long red shirt over jeans and sandals. Her hair was breaking free of its band. A leather pouch hung from her belt and a whistle from a cord around her neck. The hawk braced his feet on her wrist, making a leather tassel swing from the gauntlet. She felt the breath of his feathers on her face as he departed, and she watched him go with the wind right under his feathers, scattering crows like drops shaken from an umbrella. Julia was trying her best to get it right for the bird. The morsels were small to keep him active. A shaming 26 ounces he'd weighed on the scales that morning. She called him with a whistle, two sharp bursts, and there he was, a dark Cupid's bow firing straight at her from the heavens. She continued along the ridge, Lucifer steady on her arm, his manic eyes never leaving her face until she gave the signal. 
she sent him reeling to and fro, and neither of them knew that this was to be their last dance. The evening started to chill. She'd almost forgotten that Julian was supposed to be meeting her there, or perhaps she'd just given up hope. He was panting when he arrived, still red in the face from the run up the hill, his bike and its useless tyre abandoned. He had the air of a boy who'd crossed three continents to see her, his sweatshirt knotted round his waist. Impossibly young, with hair falling over his eyes and an uncertain lope, one leg of his jeans still tucked into a sock. He didn't dare kiss her, he said, with the hawk glaring at him like that from the end of her wrist. The hawk shrugged his shoulders and she sent him flying. They kissed, and when Julian stopped to glance nervously at the sky, she took off her gauntlet and pushed his hand inside. She urged the hawk with her whistle, moving Julian's arm up and down, the gauntlet's tassel dancing. But Lucifer only soared higher, the wind whispering murder into his ear and deafening him to her call. Julia ran cursing, Julian lolloping beside her. She grabbed back the gauntlet as the hawk fell to his kill. Julian's hands were warm on her waist, and it seemed to them both that the scream of the rabbit went on forever. It was almost midnight when she got back to Witchwood. She'd have stayed at Julian's digs until morning if it hadn't been for Lucifer, bloody bird. She parked the car in the lane, coaxed him from his crate and clipped him on. Lucifer shook out his feathers, a little irked that somebody had carelessly creased his cape. Fallen twigs cracked underfoot as she cut through the copse, the bird a resentful weight on her arm, the accusatory glitter of his eyes, the only brightness beneath the trees. The darkness dropped, the branches stilled. Witchwood stood alone in the clearing, as unexpected as a Grimm's brother's cottage, with its wonky black boards and crooked windows. At once, she could see a light was on, though was certain she'd switched everything off. Her face owlish white, Julia slipped through the back gate, whispering to Lucifer as she transferred him to his post in the shed and on alone up the path. Heart beating, a skittering loose stone at the steps, she pushed the door open with her foot and straight into the kitchen. A gasp, mostly relief. Chris, her husband, streaky hair flat to his head, his giant grey trainers kicked halfway across the floor, chinkering his spoon in a cup. She took half a pace back. Why the look of surprise, he said. I live here too, you know. Maggie, his lurcher, quivered in disgust beside him, her nose pressed to his knee. So here I am, home. He made a mockery of the word, bristling with it, pointing his spoon at her like a weapon. I wasn't expecting you. She hung the leather gauntlet on its hook, brain racing for an alibi and stalling. You gave me a fright, you could have been anybody. He cursed her for the welcome, bearing teeth older than his mouth, Nescafe and tobacco. What did you do? Did you leave Lucifer in the boot while you... I couldn't get the car to start. He snatched the leather pouch from her and threw the leftover bits of meat to his dog, then pulled it inside out. If you don't clean it out, there'll be maggots again. He was supposed to be away until Christmas, by which time Julia had promised herself to be gone. His overalls fell open to a Ramones T-shirt so faded you'd have to already know the name of the band and down to a belt with a large metal buckle. He unloaded his pockets over the... <laughs> she really doesn't Whatever know it was. what comes next. <laughs> Kitchen counter. Tobacco, Murray mints, rolling papers, doped in, change clattering. His hair was dotted with grey paint, like flies had been laying eggs in it. 
it's great you're so pleased to see me, he said. A real treat. Likewise. Oh. <laughs> 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 okay. Okay. More? Sperm. Hmm? Sperm. Yeah. Sperm. Okay, sperm. Sperm. Okay, sperm. It's what we call him in London. <laughs> Sorry, it's so not... And New York. <laughs> so um, this is now um, from Juli Julian's point of view, and it's a week before that encounter. They were... And they're at, all at university. They were a strange gang that summer, united only by their parts in Julian's early little anaphylaxis drama in the park. Almost everyone else had scarpered when term ended, but Julian was staying on until at least the middle of August to clear his debts, working shifts at the Crown. Cara, too. Save a life and it's yours forever. Something like that. Cara tried to remember a Chinese proverb for Carl and looking sidelong at Julian, deliberately prov provocative. And by the way, he's been carrying on. You're welcome to him, I say. Carl had his research project and Verity was too hooked on medicine to leave the faculty after her first year. She turned up wherever Carl went nodding at every word that fell from his lips, positioning herself by his side whenever possible, picking his considerable brain. Verity had what Carl called a laboratory tan and a bubbling complexion that betrayed a diet of wine and crisps. Most of her clothing in some way of cut or colour resembled hospital scrubs or doctor's coats. Cara, by contrast, was slinky. That night at Carl's, she wore a black satin blouse with buttonholes crucially just a little too generous for its pearl buttons and a stolen black bowler hat that gave her the look of Sally Bowles. I was the one who found the lady with the EpiPen, she was reminding them for the hundredth time, cocking an eyebrow with mocked indignation. I keep telling you, it's me you need to thank. She twirled the ill-begotten hat on the end of her index finger. Not Carl. Carl was grinning at her, intoxicated. Steady on, Julian wanted to tell him. You'll frighten her off. He was yet to discover that women rarely resisted Carl. It was not the way mm. he looked. Girls didn't, on the whole, favour short, untidy men with comedy eyebrows. It was something else. They'd finished the bottle of brandy one of Carl's housemates had swiped from a party. Cara prowled the borders of Carl's room, pulled books from shelves, studied the random objects ranged around, picked up some old vertebrae and put them down fast blue dust from flowers desiccated in wine bottles. She came to a standstill at Carl's microscope. That's what started it. Tracing her finger along a box of slides and looking back at them over her shoulder, but addressing only Carl. Someone I know had a boyfriend who liked to study his own sperm under the microscope. Outrageously flirtatious. Do you ever do that, Carl? I do it every day, he replied, <laughs> suppressing a smile. He'd unhooked his glasses and was polishing them on the hem of his shirt. He looked up, stopping to meet her gaze, blinking in that way he did without his specs. Mine and other people's. His face was bare without his glasses, vulnerable like a boy who has lost his mother. Verity stopped leafing through piles of tapes and rocked back on her heels, alert as a terrier at the rattle of the biscuit tin. Really? Hmm. Yeah, that's, why I'm, that's what I'm researching. We're testing sperm and its reaction to various chemicals and drugs. He grinned at Cara again. His chevroning eyebrows were the most attractive thing about him. You've kept that quiet, Verity said. Is it a contraception research project? Yeah, that's why I'm still here. Carl gestured at the room and shrugged. It's got a small grant, so I get paid. And you collect your own samples, 
Kara looked sideways at him from beneath the brim of the bowler. Oh, we work from Frozen, mainly. Carl shot a quick glance at Julian and grinned. Though we're always looking for donors. Julian snorted, felt himself grow hot. Verity plonked herself close beside him among the cushions, rubbing her hand back and forth along the inside seam of his jeans. A sample was needed. <laughs> Another bottle of brandy was discovered, <laughs> followed by chases of ouzo from Carl's housemate's holiday. On repeat was that tape of Carl's favourite soundtrack, The Mission. Julian could hear it through the wall as he sat on the edge of the lavatory, his jeans round his ankles, Verity on her knees, keen to assist, <laughs> tugging at him with all the delicacy of a milkmaid. <laughs> he looked at the glass jar in his left hand and thought of Kara in the other room with Carl. Somehow, that helped. Kara had a gap between her front teeth and swingy <laughs> hair that smelled of apricots. <laughs> And that shirt, on the verge of unbuttoning all evening. Carl had been leaning over her, finally removing the hat as Verity led him from the room with the jar. There was one last look as Kara edged herself up Carl's desk, her skirt sliding to the top of her thighs, Carl's hands already in her hair and Carla leaning back so that Carl had to scoop over her to kiss her. And at last, her shirt fell open and, yes, no bra! <laughs> and, and with that... Verity got her sample. <laughs> the, I haven't finished. I know, but he had. He's finished, I haven't. The, ex <laughs> the extractor fan whirred and clanked as Verity inspected his cloudy offering, oh. holding the jar to the light, tipping it this way and that until he begged her to stop felled by pudeur and suddenly sober. Carl prepared the slide and set up the microscope. He slooshed the sample with saline, telling Kara, it has to be around the same salinity as seawater because the sea has the same mineral balance as our bodies. If I mixed it with plain water, they would die. On hand beside him, Kara was like a dental nurse in disarray, her shirt buttoned up wrong. Verity hovered, refusing eye contact with Julian, while Carl continued making tiny adjustments to the microscope, peering through the eyepiece, raising and lowering the platform. Julian was almost tapping his foot with impatience when Carl started jigging, doing a pee-pee dance. Sorry, I'll be quick, he said, dashing from the room. Don't touch anything. While he was gone, Cara rolled a spliff. Verity slumped beside her. Julian fiddled with a deck of cards, trying to remember a trick that his old friend, Peace Convoy Raff, had shown him. Raff's was a good trick, because not many people knew it. Mm. If he could remember how, he'd make all four aces rise from the pack. Kara and Verity kept spluttering with laughter. Kara put her hat on to Carl's skeleton. The joint was finally passed back to him and tasted hot. They heard the chugging of the flush, and Carl sidled back, looking flustered. Why don't the three of you finish smoking that thing while I sort this out? He resumed his work with the microscope. I might need to change a bulb. Never had one go on me before he said, mumbling, shaking his head over the thing. Julian really was very stoned by the time Carl called him over. Carl gripped him by the shoulder. Take a look, he said, all swimming around with no particular place to go. And he shushed Verity, telling her to wait her turn. Julian bent to the eyepiece. He was oddly moved by what he saw. This constellation, no more than that, so many of them, each with its own halo as though lit from within, sparkling, darting, flickering, his very own universe, composed entirely of comets. 
They seemed so purposeful, so bright and full of promise, that for a moment he felt sad for each and every one of them, for their urgency, for the messages they would never get to deliver. Thank you. <laughs> I, I love the sperm bit. I, <laughs> I know you do. That's why I, I read that I know, bit just every, for you, Every Damien. time I do love it. I ne <laughs> it never gets old. Um, so um, the, the kindness started as a short story, which is, which is to do with the hawk. Can you tell us a bit about the short story and whether or not it was always going to be a novel? Well, it wasn't going to be a novel because I, at the point that I started, I, I just finished Perfect Lives, and, which is a book of linked short stories, and in, in the UK, I don't think it's the same here, you are so unpopular if you write short stories because there's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy by UK publishers that short stories don't sell. Yeah. And, um, and it, it, it's kind of irritating. So I, kind of, I kept thinking there must be a way that one could present short stories in a different format. So my original idea was that the first half of the book would be a kind of novella that would end... Julian's a writer, but not of... Um, anything that I'd want to write. He writes um, history through the point of view of, of, of the monarchy's lapdogs. But Not David Cameron, you mean. No. <laughs> actual spaniels. Actual spaniels. Actual spaniels. Yes. Actual canines. Yes, act yes. And, um, uh, and so I did start by, by trying it in that format. And the thing is that things do have their own form. And I realised that however angry I felt about short stories... Actually, it just needed to be a novel, so mm. I had to, I gave in, and it's but, a novel. But it, but it's but the, but the initial image that came to you for the short story was of was of this woman with the hawk. Well, it was um, there, there there was already the germ of an idea that I'd been thinking about since my early twenties, which was based very loosely on a very sad family story. But it was just one day when I knew that I wanted Julia and Julian to meet. Not kind of, you know, in a pub in or a, a club yeah. or a, at work by the water cooler. I wanted something dramatic because it really is a coup de foudre. And I kept trying to think of some way for them to meet. And I think it was Susan Hill, who, whose daughter is here actually, hooray, <laughs> <laughs> um, who tweeted just in the days when Twitter was a wonderful thing and people did this. She just, just tweeted, wouldn't it be amazing to feel the weight of a hawk on your arm? And this was before H is for Hawk, yes, before I hasten Helen to McDonald's. add. And, and actually, my book is the opposite, because Julia does not want to look after that hawk. No. That, she is as, as imprisoned as the hawk is, because her husband goes away for long stretches, sort of imprisoning her by leaving her with his, his hawk mm. to take care that he, of. That she has to feed horrible dead animals and, and oh, keep awful. up to weight, and he will weigh yes. the animal when he gets back. Yes. And if it's not up to weight, And it's the way he that he bullies her. her. Yeah. Um, and so when I, I read this tweet, and I thought, what it kind of would be amazing to feel the weight of a hawk on your arm, but what if you didn't really like it? And so I booked myself onto a falconry course. As you do. As one does, as when one do. is a SWAT. Total what, SWAT. What is the American word for SWAT? Because I don't think it's SWAT. Um, geek. You know, like someone who just works too hard at everything, yeah. you know. They would say geek. geek. But geek's yeah. a, yeah, geek. Geek, yeah. yeah. And, um, and actually, I wasn't that thrilled by it, so it, it kind of worked. You didn't you know? like the experience yourself. I kind of feathery tattoo. their feet are horrible with great claws and, ooh, and the stuff they eat it's disgusting right. okay. you know. 
So no to the falconry. It's but, just um, not my future. But, but, but you did a huge amount of research for this book. I mean, it did take a very long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ten? Ten well, years? No, not quite that long. But actually, Nine? I mean, a long time, I, longer than I thought. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it, took, it took four years to write, but, and I had no idea for how long it had been brewing until we had um, to clear an old attic because we had beetles. And, and, and so I finally looked in that trunk of letters and diaries and notebooks that I'd written in my early 20s that I'd been avoiding for all those years full of that sort of shame of what might be in there. And I found a notebook where I had kind of plotted out this novel. So I had no idea it had been with me that long. Um, and That's was, incredible. Yeah. I mean, you, and you weren't conscious of having deferred it. It was just, it no, was a, it was a, a real rediscovery when you, when you got to it. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to um, talk about certain aspects of the novel without giving things away. Yeah. So we don't want to have any spoilers. But what's interesting is that in lots of reviews, um, the novel is referred to as a thriller of the emotions. Were you conscious when you were writing it of writing any kind of thriller? No. And in fact, the, the reviews also refer to how, how I must have sort of spent so long working it out and plotting it. And actually, I never, ever do that because... Mm. I mean, I would love to do that. I have a friend who does that, who, well, mm, both, yeah. who has a chart on the wall. And with it's, post-it notes. And then, but the whole thing is laid out with chapter one, chapter two, you know, with turning points and all those wonderful things that we're all supposed to know about and, and, and adhere to. And I kind of looked at that and thought, that must be the best way of writing because then you can just enjoy the writing. You're just hanging the stuff off the scaffolding. Yeah. But actually, then I kind of got home and thought about it and thought, I'd be so bored if I did that. Yeah. So I didn't have any idea where this was going. I knew what the moral problem was. I knew who the people were. I knew what the actual act of kindness was because that's the thing that's based on the original family story. Um, but other than that, I let the characters kind of work it out for themselves so there was no plotting involved. Yeah, it is absolutely, you know, like a lock. One part leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other. Well, it's, it's had a lot of help in that department from my trusty editors, one of whom <laughs> I have to... I'm sorry, Damien, but... No, that's you know, Damien did help me quite a lot to put quite a lot of ragged notes into some sort of order. There, were, there, I, there weren't ragged notes. I think the thing is, because you write short stories um, so well, you, you get excited about something and you go off on a 3,000-word tangent that is essentially yeah. a self-contained, beautiful short story yeah. um, that actually can have a life on its own. So I think a lot of the things that were in here that were those digressions, I'm hoping, <laughs> will become short stories because they were fantastic. They're gone. <laughs> See how callous she is? She's a dream to work with in that respect. Um, so so you, you got back to it and you looked at it. Why did you pick it up now? Because you could just have put the book the notebook back in the suitcase. You didn't have to, you know, bring it back to life. Why was it at that? What was it about that point in your life that made you think, I can do it now? I can't quite remember why it became so pressing. Um, I don't know, because, you know, everyone who writes, you know, you have all these things, and I, it's the position I'm in at the moment where I've got three things, and I don't know which one to go for, and it's really frustrating. Mm. And I now can't remember what it was mm. that made me go for it. may have been that, um, I think actually what it was was The Guardian, at a point the when story. I wasn't writing, said, when would, I ask, would I write a short story? Mm. And the short story I wrote was about Julian mm. and the hawk and meeting Julia. And I think maybe that just tipped me into 
getting on with it? I think the other, one of the key characteristics of the book is that it's, it's full of grief and longing, both well, for relationships and for, for, for people and for a, a perceived state of perfection, this idea that we were good then, we had a good time then, and now we are not having a good time, and, and why has it gone so wrong, and them just not understanding. Um, and when you think about what you were going through in your own life then, with Charlie going to jail mm. and your dad dying, and then you read this book, which is full of, of grief and this sense of longing. And, it, and it's like, is, this a, is it a place for you to put it? Was it a refuge for you? Or was it, what, 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 you know? So, so when The Guardian you know, said, would I write a short story? I, I had been in this sort of state of not really being able to write. I mean, I, I don't suppose anyone here really kind of knows what happened. But my son went on a student protest, an anti-austerity um, protest. And and got a bit out of control and ended up going to prison. And, and you know, as the mother of someone who that ha you know, there isn't really much you can do except worry about your 21-year-old son who yeah. is now in a man's prison and you have no way of contacting him and it is wretched and it, it just isn't conducive really to writing and I didn't want to write about that experience. Mm. Um, and so the short story that I wrote for The Guardian started with a piece that, that's not actually in the... I mean, it's got nothing to do with the book, but it started with a terrible prison visit we did where some of his friends had gone to visit him and there'd been some sort of mistake when they'd gone to the cafe and they'd left him with a pound coin and prisoners aren't allowed to have a pound coin and somehow he'd been discovered with this pound coin and he was punished. And the way that they punished him, one of the ways that they punished him, was that you were only able to visit him at once, I think it was once a month. And on this occasion, we had to visit him through glass. And they make it as horrible as they can possibly make it. And they have a sort of box that you can talk to. I mean, he was in a man's prison, so mm. this is what, you know, there are married couples and there is sort of, ex oh, I mean, it is smelly, it is horrible. And also that the audio quality is, it has to be deliberately bad. So you can't actually hear what your prisoner is mm. saying. So it was a, an awful experience. And a couple of my children were with me. And I think it's probably one of the worst experiences of my life. And I think it was a sort of week later that The Guardian said, would I write this thing? And so I sort of wrote myself into it by writing this thing about seeing my child like some sort of snake behind glass mm. and then it kind of expanded into this idea of Julian the, the sort of wonderful scholar of Milton mm. and I suppose it was a sort of longing for what had gone before when you know my child was just someone at university who was sort of gorgeous and getting on with his life and making us so proud and, and not that anything he did you know I mean I, I'd never stopped feeling proud of him actually I was proud of him for going on the protest I wasn't proud of him for getting out of order but I was very proud mm. that he stood up for things that he believed were right and so it was a way of writing myself through that I think and somehow this emerged I've never heard you talk about it like that before but in, in, in effect and you mentioned Milton that that is the kind of prelapse theory and that's well, the, that's the it, paradise that was lost yeah yeah, and the only, when, well, while this awful period of time was, while we were living through it, um, I'd never really 
studied Paradise Lost and I knew that it was, you know, I knew what it was. And I'd, in fact, I tortured my family by listening to the audiobooks on long car journeys. That really is a kind of abuse. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, please, anything, can't we just listen to the radio? Yeah. And I go, no, it's only nine CDs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's a I, big you know, series of books. Yeah. So I, that, that was the period when I sort of studied it because I needed something to take me away from worrying, really, yeah. about what was happening to my child. So Paradise Lost is a part of the book. It's a kind of invisible compass that, you, that you're reading, that the reader, if they understand it or they know it, gets the references, but you don't need to understand it in yeah. order to appreciate it, the novel. It's a kind of secret layer that, yeah. you know, the five people in the world who remember Paradise Lost will kind of go, oh, yes, <laughs> I, know yeah. why, I know why the dog is called this or, you know, why, yeah. you know. But, why there's yeah. Lucifer, the hawk. Yeah. Or why and, the and hawk Raph. is called Lucifer for exactly. that, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions now. You go first. You, you kind of touched on that already, but um, you're a really, really phenomenal writer of short stories as well as novels. And um, you're the only writer of short stories that I actually really like. Oh! <laughs> but I'm, I'm just really interested in where, in that point in the process, you decide about whether it's a short story idea or whether it's a novel idea or how you kind of intuit the, the, the question is to do with sh sort of short yeah. stories and novels, and, and I think this is really interesting because if you read the bit of the novel that's a short story, it's a bit of a homunculus. It's all in there, but yeah. then there's so much more that you yeah. add to it, you yeah. know. And you know, how, how what, what is that process of going from short story to for well, a novel in, in for the, this one? In the case of this one, I I started. I thought that the best place to start would be by writing. So the idea was it would be the novella, which would be. So, so what happens in the in the book is that Julie, we start with a very heartbroken man whose mm. wife and child have disappeared and we don't know why. And so I thought that would be the novella part and that the short story part would be his explosion of creativity and the stories would help hit, the stories he wrote would both be part of his understanding the things that had happened to him and been done to him as well as being short stories. But when I wrote, I think I wrote three or four of them, I realised that, that there was this other thing that was dying to get out there, that it just didn't, it just didn't work. It just, it, mm. I think things find their own form, and yeah. it's really hard to explain how that is. Um, I don't really think in short stories anymore, and it's quite sad, because the thing about a short story is that you can keep the whole thing in your head. It's this sort of gleeful, wonderful thing. You've got this lovely, containable... Your brain isn't exploding, because it's going to be about 3,000 words, and, and you can go and take the dog for a walk, and it's there, and you can perfect it and think about it and think about it. And you can't really do that with a novel, because mm. it feels massive. like you're going to go mad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Brighton, because it's where we both live, and it's in the novel, and it's a big place in the short stories but it's yeah. kind of also a character as it is in Jonathan's novel yeah. um, so you know wh why why has Brighton come to have such a big place in the stuff that that you write oh the sea is just such a good metaphor for everything isn't it I think yeah. I don't know it's um in the, the the book of stories perfect lives they're all set in Brighton but I wrote them before I lived in Brighton and it was a sort of rather bad tempered exercise because I, didn't, I lived in the middle of the countryside for a long time, was very happy, and then my children all needed to go to school in Brighton, and it was just that little bit too far um, to make them travel, and I didn't want them to go to boarding school. 
And so David and I sort of thought, well, you know, we love staring at green fields, but this is a little bit selfish when our children need to travel an hour there and an hour back, and, oh, we're just going to have to go and live there. And we've both felt really kind of gloomy about it, sort of self-sacrificing, marvellous parents. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so in that sort of year when, when I knew that that's what we were going to have to do, those stories emerged, and it was a way of my trying to imagine what, life in Brighton might be like. Yeah. Um, and actually, then when we lived there, it, sort of things kind of are... I kind of got it right, I think. Yeah, you you know, I mean, I would look out of the window and there would be that man with the shitty dogs on their leads and there would be the men early in the morning with the metal detectors. And So it was kind of reassuring to have imagined it kind of... And, the, and I have to add that having been so kind of grumpy about living there, within a week... I was besotted. Yeah. I never want to live anywhere else as long as I live. I couldn't not now live by the sea. What do you think um, when you see the Grand, when you walk past the Grand? Oh, Damien, don't ask me that. You just, you just think, well, I'll tell you what, what a shame. There was a day when Thatcher died, I walked past the Grand and the flag was at half-mast and that was, that was okay. <gasps> oh, she's harsh. I took a question from the back. Somebody hit their hand up. Who was that person? Yes, ask your question, please. Yeah, when you have so many options about where it could go, it could be a short story, a novel, it could be yeah. this, it could be that. How do you write yourself out of those corners I, I, with all those possibilities? I never write myself out of a corner and I never stare at the page because it's just agitated. I go for a walk. Yeah. I mean, everything is walking. I mean, it's so... I, I, think, I think that writing for me is more or less typing and the, the kind of creative work happens for all forms, just walking, 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 walking. More of which later... Please join me in thanking Polly Sampson. Thank you. Thank you, Damien. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. Can I recommend that you follow her Instagram, Polly Sampson Official, where she posts beautiful pictures of all the wondrous things she encounters in her life. It doesn't seem fair that she's an amazing photographer as well as an amazing writer, but there we have it. And while you're at it, follow Damien Barr Literary Salon so you can see what we're up to as well. Mm -hmm.